This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Lord, as we sit in your presence today, we pray that your Holy Spirit will touch our hearts open our hearts and our spiritual ears to hear what you're saying. We pray that your word will find a resting place in our hearts and it will bear fruit in the days to come. So we give you thanks in Christ's name today. Amen. Christianity at its very heart has got several wonderful attributes Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these is what Paul called the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5 and 1 Corinthians 12, there's the ninefold gifts of the Holy Spirit. And underpinning all of these, there's one thing that is absolutely indispensable. And it is, where the, it is the ground where the, where the fruit of the Spirit takes root. I'm talking about the grace of God. The grace of God. None of us would ever experience anything of God's Spirit without the grace of God. We sit here today because of the marvelous grace of God. All of us has experienced the grace of God. Whether believer or unbeliever, we have experienced the grace of God. Whenever we think about the grace of God, we should, we should think about it in two ways. In a general sense, and then in a specific sense. In a general sense, uh, this is what, I believe it was John Calvin who coined the phrase common grace. In other words, God's grace is common to every human being, to every man, to all mankind. God's grace touches everyone and everything. That's why he called it common grace. When we think of specific grace, we're talking about special grace. Special grace that relates to us as believers. And so we need to consider these two senses regarding grace. Now, when I say common grace, uh, I want you to think of it in these terms that I'm going to mention. I want you to think about it in terms of God's, God's providence in his provision. His providence in his provision. Common grace is called common because it's common to everyone. In other words, God provides to everyone to the whole of all mankind. God made creation for everyone to enjoy, for everyone to experience, for everyone to be blessed with. God's creation is tailor-made for human beings. And God, who is the creator, made it so that everybody, no matter what race or color or creed or gender, that everyone can enjoy the provision of God. 
the way that God created the seasons, and particularly the times of spring and harvest, so that there's a bounty for everyone out there in that universe of ours. It's barren. It's lifeless. It's empty. But this little planet of ours is bursting with life. The seas are full of fish. Uh, the, the fields are full of corn and wheat and fruit and vegetables. And there's, there's, when, when it comes harvest time, of course, that's when we think about these things. But it's there for our provision. In Genesis 8.22, which you don't need to turn to, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God has got a cycle and in that cycle, we move from, from phase to phase. And each of it is important in its own way. Now, that's one of the reasons that scripture, why I haven't bought into the hysteria. And it is hysteria regarding global warming and climate change. There's always been change in our weather, and there always will be. There's always going to be winter and summer and cold and heat and so forth and so on. And the fact that God has put it into Genesis 8:22 tells us it's always going to be that way. So there's sometimes it's more heightened, sometimes it's more extreme, but it's always going to be this way. Matthew 5:45, He makes the sun to shine on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God's common grace is overarching to all humanity, to every human being on the face of the earth. Psalm 145, 16. You open your hand and desire, and, and you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. That's God's grace. We can live on this planet because of God's common grace, because he made it just for us. And so think of grace, common grace, in the sense of God's providence and his provision. And how God has given mankind abilities and creativity and ingenuity and all that we need to provide and to be industrious and to be fruitful and to multiply. All of this God has put within mankind and all of that you can put onto the banner of simply common grace. Another thing that we can think about when we talk of common grace is what I call God's protection. God's protection. Now let me explain what I mean by saying protection. We live in a, a sinful, evil, wicked, fallen world. I mean, unless you have been living in Mars for this past 40 years, you know that's true. And you can see that every single day of our lives. We see the wickedness, the evil. Sometimes you think, how worse could it possibly be? But it does get worse. Sin corrupts, injustice abounds, violence increases. However, if it was not for the influence and the wisdom of God, things would be a whole lot worse. It's only God's Influence and God's restraining that has allowed us to even exist. If it wasn't for that, we would have long since fallen into the, the, the abyss by now. We would have self-destructed long ago. 
but God has given mankind a means of protection. Albeit an imperfect one, because we live in a fallen, sinful world. And this protection is called government. Government. I know sometimes we get very frustrated and we're pulling our hair out at the moment in our country over government. But around the world, God has instituted government to govern. And the whole idea is that we would govern well and justly and righteously. That's God's ideal. We know that doesn't happen in every case because we live in a sinful, fallen, wicked world. But listen to what Paul writes to Timothy, the young pastor, 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. Therefore I exhort you first of all that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. Whether we like them or not. Why? Here's the reason. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, Paul here is, is showing us that God's whole idea of government, ultimately, that we live a, a quiet and peaceful life, that ultimately, that the gospel can go forth. Now, again, we know that that doesn't always happen, and governments change. But God's idea was this in the first place, and ideally, if governments would give us peace and would give us safety and would allow the gospel to go forth, that's, that's why we should pray for those in authority. We love to complain about them. I do, you do, we all do. We have a good old moan and a gripe, but do we ever stop to pray for them? I tell you, some of them I wouldn't like to be in their position. It's not an easy job for a lot of them. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, speaks about this in Romans chapter 13. And remember the context that Paul's speaking this in. The Apostle Paul was living in, a, in a, a generation under a totalitarian government, a pagan government, a government that was brutal, a government that was powerful, a government that was mighty, a, a government that would, would not allow anyone uh, to, uh, to overthrow them or to fight against them. They were powerful. And Paul writes about this, and he talks about this type of government. And he talks about how we should pray for them and obey them and not take up arms against them. There is nowhere in all of the New Testament that tells Christians to take up arms and fight against the government. 
Now, as Democrats, we can say our peace. As Democrats, we can vote. But there's nowhere that says that we should take up arms against a government, actually. It's not there for us to do that. And you can't find it in the New Testament. Jesus didn't advocate it. And so Paul is in a, in a, a context where that is the case. And yet in that context, he tells us to pray for them, to pray for those in authority, to pray for kings and leaders and those in authority. And that's what we ought to do and not to fight. Now, it would be wonderful in, a, in, a, in an ideal world, it would be wonderful if our governments were good and they were honest and they were <laughs> protecting their citizens. That would be wonderful. But even if it's not, and Paul's writing in a, in a situation where it wasn't, but even when it's not, he still says that we should pray and that we should encourage. You know, Paul was a Roman citizen. He had Roman citizenship. And when he needed to, and there was a couple of times when he needed to use that citizenship at one time he was falsely accused and he was imprisoned and then when they realized he was a Roman citizen they, they, uh, they says well you can go free now but he says no no he says you authorities put me here so you come and release me why because I'm a Roman citizen I've got some citizens rights so he wasn't afraid to do that and that's okay all of us has got rights citizens rights and we can use that but that's different than actually taking up arms and fighting and going against. And so we need to be very, very careful because God uses governments and he uses that for his own desire in order that he can cause us to be living in a place of peace, a place where we can enjoy life, a place where the gospel can go forth. Isn't it interesting that God sent his son when his Italian government was in power that controlled all the then known world? And that's when God decided that his son would come into that situation. Why did he do that? Well, consider this for a moment. When Jesus came, the Romans were ruling. When Paul's writing this, the Romans were ruling. And the Romans had a, a thing called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And the Pax Romana meant, we will leave you alone to get on with your lives as long as you don't rise up against us. If you rise up against us, we will put you down brutally. But if you don't, we, by and large, we will leave you alone to get on with your life and worship your gods. Now, we know, depending on which Nero ruled, sometimes there was intense persecution against Jews and Christians. But by and large, over a long period of time, it was the Pax Romana. And so no nation at that point was strong enough to take them on militarily, and so, they had a, so there was a peace. Now, albeit it was a peace that was enforced, but a peace nonetheless. But the Romans were great road builders. They, were great, uh, they made great trade routes. They built viaducts and aqueducts and great roads and opened up sea lanes. And so... The Roman Empire, the Roman world was, was open for people to travel. 
What better time for the church to be born? What better time for evangelism? What better time for missionary enterprises than that time whenever the then known world was opened up and, and the apostles, the disciples could go out to the ends of the earth, which they did. And so Paul says to pray for those in authority. They do not bear the sword in vain, he says. Do you remember whenever Jesus stood before Pilate? And Pilate said to Jesus, do you not know that I have the power to take your life? He meant I have the power of the sword. I have the legal right in my position to save life or to take it. Remember what Jesus said? You would have no power at all except it was given you. In other words, the powers that be are ordained of God for good or for ill. Actually, sometimes, sometimes God uses a government to judge a people. The Old Testament's full of that. Whenever Israel, particularly, whenever his people went into idolatry, God would warn them and warn and warn and warn. And if they didn't listen, he would send another, another nation against them to chastise them, to judge them. But whenever they did that, and if they did it, and they went over the top and were brutal, then God would send another nation to judge them. So make no mistake, God can raise up a nation, God can put down a nation. He can raise up a, a leader, he can put down a leader. And this is one of the things that Paul is trying to teach. And so common grace has allowed for governments around the world to govern. And one day, Christ himself will come and he will govern the whole world. <laughs> he will govern the whole world. But meantime, because of his grace, because if he didn't have any government, if there was no governments, and if there was no armies, and if there was no police forces, and there was nothing, there'd be absolute chaos and anarchy. But that's things together by and large. The third thing regarding common grace is God's promptings. Now, whenever I say promptings, as believers, immediately it'll come to your mind about the Holy Spirit prompting that you get a leading. You get this strong feeling and we call it promptings or leadings. But that's what I'm not talking about here. That's under special grace for the believers. I'm talking about common grace for everybody. When I say promptings here, I'm talking about something that God has put into every human being, a thing called conscience. Conscience that pricks us and can prompt us. Conscience that can help us to know what's right and what's wrong, that we become conscious of that which is right and that which is wrong. And it's a, a mysterious thing, but God has put it into every human being's life. So everybody's got it. Now, there's no question you can ignore your conscience. You can fight against your conscience. You can get to the place where the Bible says your conscience being seared as with a hot iron, where it becomes calloused, and you don't feel it anymore. And you put that prompting down so many times you just don't even feel it anymore but it's there for a purpose and God can use 
those promptings. And so as, as human beings, we instinctively know what's right and what's wrong. We instinctively feel accountable. Accountable to one another, accountable to a government, accountable to our community. We feel accountable. Our conscience does that. Apostle Paul in Acts 24, 16 says, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. I make it my aim to have a good conscience towards God and man. Now, as believers, we ought to have the best conscience. Why? Because not just do we know right from wrong because of our conscience, but because of God's Word. And God's Word helps to keep our conscience right, that we think the right way, that we act the right way, that we get the promptings the right way by our conscience because it's subject to the Word of God. So believers, everybody's got conscience, but believers ought to have the sharpest and the best conscience. Why? Because the Word of God directs us and it helps us, and it lightens us. So conscience gives us respect for others and respect for ourselves. And so in spite of our fallenness in this world, in spite of all of that, we have this thing called conscience that helps us to be able to live with one another and respect one another. Conscience, the promptings, this mysterious thing that God has given to every human being. And so believer, be in the word of God, know the word of God, understand the word of God, be in prayer, and your conscience will be a good conscience, as Paul says. I want a good conscience towards men, towards God. So that's common grace. There's more, but that's enough of common grace. But then there's special grace. A special grace is for those who have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, who are born again of God's Spirit. And this is what Bible scholars call special grace. And this special grace is what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. The word grace is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. And this word was, it was a common word. It was widely used uh, in the, in the, in the Greek-speaking world in which Jesus lived and Paul lived. And originally it simply meant sweetness or attractiveness. Then it, it became broader than that and it meant favor and goodwill and loving kindness. And particularly when it meant it was coming from a superior to an inferior, from a master to a servant, or from a king to his subjects. And it was giving a gift, a present, if you will, a gift without any thought of return, just out of the generosity, out of the kindness of someone's heart. The Greeks called that charis. I have received a charis gift. 
out of somebody's generous heart. And the Apostle Paul takes that thought, that idea that was common. He takes that, but then he transfers that onto this business of God giving us his son without any thought of return, just out of his generous heart, his merciful, compassionate heart. He gives to us his only begotten son to die on a Roman cross for us to take away our sins. That's charis, that's special grace for us. And the word grace is mentioned over and over and over again in the scripture. And it took on this idea of a gift giving with no thought of return. Matthew and Mark never used it. John only used it four times. Luke used it eight times in his gospel and 16 times in Acts because he wrote the book of Acts. However, it is the apostle Paul who was very fond of this word. He used it over 100 times in his letters. Why do you suppose he did that? Because he realized more than most men how that God gave to him the gift of life, of salvation. He who was the least deserving, he says, I'm the least of the apostles. He says, I was the chiefest of sinners. And yet God in his mercy gave me his son and saved my eternal soul. No wonder he loved that word, charis, grace. Because every time he thought about it, he thought how undeserving he was. And yet God in his mercy poured out through his son, his grace to him. And what he did for Paul, he did for us too. None of us would be here today without the grace of God, either his common grace or his special grace. For those of us who are believers, we would never be here today, except God saved us. Now let me quickly add just a couple of things when we speak of special grace. Theologians like to use big words. So let me give you a couple of words that they like. Prevenient. Prevenient. Methodists like the word prevenient. John Wesley loved it. Prevenient means God taking the initiative. God making it a priority to take action on behalf of needy sinners like you and me. It was all God's idea. God before we ever even thought of him or salvation or grace or anything, God had already taken the initiative and made it possible for us even to believe, even to come to him and receive his grace. This is prevenient grace. God giving us something that was going to prevent us going to a lost eternity and out of his mercy and his love, he just gives it. Provenient grace. What a wonderful thing to know today that none of us could have ever earned or deserved the grace of God. That puts us, every one of us, on the same level before him. In 1 John 4, verse 10, 19, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. 
Not that we love God, but that he loved us. See how it's always his initiative. Verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Prevenient grace. He first loved us. So that's why Paul insists in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that none of us can boast. Provident grace. And so there's much talk today of the, because this is the Reformation anniversary year, 500 years, there's much talk of the five solas. Sola means alone. We're saved through grace alone, by faith alone, according to the word of God alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. All the glory goes to him because all the grace and mercy came from him. The second word we need to think about when we speak of special grace is efficacious. Efficacious. E-F-F-I-C-A-C-I-O-U-S. Efficacious. And by this, scholars mean grace which achieves the desired result. In other words, grace that is highly effective, grace that gets the job done, grace that is powerful enough to change our sinful lives and make us children of God. This is efficacious. It does the job. Glory to God. John 10, 27, 28. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. That is highly effective, isn't it? That's efficacious. That gets the job done. Do you believe that this morning? That works. Philippians 1 and 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Efficacious. It gets the job done. It's powerful enough to save us. It's powerful enough to keep you. Jude says, God is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the throne. That's efficacious grace. And we have been the recipients of God's prevenient efficacious grace. And that's why we sit here today. And that's why we share today. Therefore, sufficient is his grace. Sufficient grace. By this I mean grace that is more than enough. More than enough. Not just to get you by, but more than enough. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. No matter how far a man or woman has fallen into the very depths of the most awful sin, his grace is sufficient 
It's more than enough to lift them up. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about John Newton and what a great sinner he admitted he was. And yet the grace of God reached him and touched him, changed his life forever. 2 Corinthians 12 and 9. My grace is sufficient for you. Something was happening to Paul. Something was coming against him. It was so bad he prayed three times for God to remove it. And I mean, he could stick a lot. But whatever it was, he says, God, please remove this. I can't take any more of this. And God says, but my grace is more than enough for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Hmm. My grace is more than enough for you. God's grace is so sufficient, it's so great, it's so powerful that this life will never ever see the end of it. We'll never experience all of it in this life. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2 and 7 that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In the ages to come, throughout all eternity, his grace is so vast and so great and so glorious, it's going to take all of eternity to show his kindness in Christ to us. I can't even begin to understand what all that means. But we've got a whole eternity to experience it. This is the marvelous grace of God. However, it would be remiss of us to think of grace solely in those terms. Solely in terms of God's gift of salvation in Christ to us, even though that is marvelous beyond our imagination, even though that is glorious beyond words. But it's more than just God saving us and keeping us. You see, when we talk about grace, oftentimes we think about it either in the past or the future. Well, God saved me then. And God's going to bless me then. In the past, God saved me. In eternity, God is going to bless me for the rest of my eternal life. But what about here and now? How does grace work today? Not just what it's done or what it will do. What is it doing today? It's got to work for us today, isn't it? So grace empowers us. Grace enables us to live as a believer in this life. You see, most of us, before we came to Christ, one of the foremost thoughts in our mind is, how am I going to do this? How am I going to keep this? Did you ever think that for you, see it? If I give my life to Christ, how am I going to live that life? But this is where the grace of God comes in. It enables you. It empowers you to be able to live this life. We couldn't live this life without the grace of God anyway. It would be impossible for us. Only the grace of God empowers us and enables us to live the Christian life in this world. So any thought in your mind, well, how am I going to do this? Get it out of it. You couldn't do it anyway. But the grace of God will give you the power to do it, will enable you to do it. 
Ephesians 4 and 7, but to each of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given. And on down that chapter, Ephesians 4, down to verse 11, and he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Huh. The fivefold ministry. Nobody, nobody that is called to God in one of those five offices could possibly do it without the grace of God. I couldn't stand here except for the grace of God. I couldn't preach to you except for the grace of God. Except for the grace of God, I would have had no desire to do it. It's the grace of God put the desire in my heart to do this. It, did, it wasn't there naturally. It was born in me by the grace of God. So whether you're behind a pulpit or you're in the pew doing what you do, it's only by the grace of God. It's only by the grace of God that we're saved. It's only by the grace of God that we witness to Christ. It's only by the grace of God that we live for him. It's only by the grace of God that we serve him. It's only by the grace of God. It's not of ourselves so that none of us can boast. Now, there's no doubt that some people are more gifted, more talented, have greater ability, but even they, it's only by the grace of God. No different in that respect. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, that's not what Paul said. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. You know, he never forgot that. It was always in the back of his mind what he had done against the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He could have said, but by the grace of God, I'm no longer what I was. But I am what I am by the grace of God. And you're no longer what you were by the grace of God. And you are what you are today by the grace of God. Then he goes on to say, And his grace towards me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. <laughs> Did you hear what he just said there? That's a big statement. Think of all the apostles that came before him. He says, I labored more abundantly than all of them put together. In case you think he's bragging here, then he qualifies that. Yet, not I, but the grace of God which was in me. God gave him tremendous opportunity. He was a highly gifted man. And he worked harder than any apostle. But he says, even though I can say that, yet I say it was only by the grace of God. Nothing to boast about. His boast was in the Lord. So no matter what we do, no matter how much we do what we do, it's only by the grace of God. That keeps us 
humble before him. It keeps us right before him. It gives him the glory, doesn't it? Paul would agree with Kenneth Swift, who says, Do this and live, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word God's grace does bring. It bids me fly and gives me wings. You thought Red Bull gives you wings? <laughs> but it's the grace of God gives us wings. That's what lifts us up and strengthens us. Ephesians 1 and 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The inexhaustible riches of his grace. The unfallible riches of his grace. We talked about the sufficiency of his grace. In John 1 16, the addition of his grace. And of his fullness we all have received and grace for grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. You keep adding, adding, adding. Peter talks about the multiplication of grace. 2 Peter 1 and 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the arithmetic of grace. Multiplied to you. And then in 1 Peter 4.10, he talks about the manifold grace of God. Good stewards of the manifold the many-sided, the multifaceted grace of God. I keep telling you, if you hold a diamond, a cut diamond up to the sun or to the light, and you turn it, it will sparkle, depending on which cut, which facet it touches. And the grace of God, Peter says, is like that. It's many-sided, it's multifaceted. There's a grace, because in 1 Peter 1, 6, he talks about manifold temptations. There's manifold grace for manifold temptations. Whatever temptation, whatever trial, there's a grace for it. There's a grace for that temptation. There's a grace for that trial. It's manifold. So no matter what trial or what temptation comes our way, God's grace will help us in the midst of it. It's manifold. And then there's the environment of his grace. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace. Any gardener listening to me today knows that you don't just take a plant, dig a hole, and just bury it anywhere in the garden. Is it in the south side? Is it in the north side? Is it under a shady tree? Is it in sandy soil? Is it in clay soil? You have to think. Because plants need the right environment to thrive in. And Peter says the right environment for us to thrive in as believers is grace. That's the soil that we bloom the most in, is the grace of God. And so it's marvelous, isn't it? This glorious grace. And if we're growing in grace, then we're maturing in God. And all of this should be, and I trust are, growing in grace in our Christian life. We've experienced more of his grace now than we, than we understood 10 years ago or whatever. You come through some stuff, you face some issues, you deal with some things, and the grace of God helps you. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. <laughs> and I'm sure you know, and obviously I've said before, the difference between according to and out of. <clears throat> Just say you came to me. You said, David, I'm in trouble. I owe 5,000 pounds and I haven't got a brass yazoo. I haven't got a bin. Can you help me? And just say, I'm a man of means. Say, I'm very wealthy. And I say to you, sure, I'll help you, my friend. There's 500 pounds. Now go out and get another nine people as generous as me, and you'll have your five grand. See, if I did that, I'd be giving out of my riches, but not according to my riches. But suppose he came to me and says, I'm in real trouble, I need 5,000 pounds, can you help me? Yes, I can help you. Of course I'll help you. And I write him out a check for 5,000 pounds and say, that'll pay your debt. But I want to do more than that because I know you're out of work and things is tough at the minute and you're under pressure. So here, there's another check for 50,000 pounds. You see, now I'm giving according to my riches, not out of them. Aren't you glad that God just doesn't give us out of, but he gives according to? According to his infinite riches, according to that grace of God that is incalculable. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Let me just close with this. Annie Johnson Flint. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, or the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love is no limit, his grace is no measure, his power no boundary known to men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Glory to God. Thank God for his grace today. Touches every part of our lives. When you're feeling low and you feel unworthy and you feel you failed and the devil comes along and tells you you're useless, you're hopeless, you'll never make it, remind him of the grace of God. Say, do you know what, Mr. Devil? I am buried in the grace of God and I will grow and I will sprout and I will bear fruit and I will blossom because I am buried in the grace of God. <laughs> Glory to God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.